I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the CollectingCast.com podcast with Chris Harris and Edward Lovett. Hello and welcome to another Collecting Cars podcast. Um, Christmas special this time um, and two of my favourite people we've yet to feature, the Frankiti brothers. Um, a literal motor racing dynasty from up over the border. Um, I hope we'll have a good chinwag with both of them now because they've got great stories to tell. Um, so to Dario and Marino Frankiti, welcome to the Collecting Cars podcast. It should have happened sooner. And my dog, who is sitting down in the footwell of the Bentley Mulzahn, has just let a massive flabby woof woof go. So I'm <laughs> gagging on the smell of dog fart as I introduce this. Oh, oh, that's so appropriate, isn't it? Is well done, Pip. Well done, oh, Pip. my Good Lord, dog, it smells like a sewer in here. Right, so um, we're recording this on the 22nd of December. Um, and there's a couple of glum-looking Scots people there who I presume have had their Christmas plans completely scuppered. Dario. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what were you supposed to be doing and what are you going to do? Well, several months ago, we were supposed to be having a Christmas party. It was, it was organised. Actually, it was organised this time last year. Um, that got obviously hit on the head quite a while ago. And then uh, we were supposed to go to Switzerland for ski, bit of skiing because my wife can work from anywhere. I can work from anywhere. And um, we decided let's go to Switzerland. But, of course, that's not happening. So... Um, I'm now stuck at home, um, but the good news is my new sim got delivered today. So you know, it's, it's, life's about balance, isn't it? <laughs> now, Marino, I know that you love your brother dearly. He's your best friend yep. in the world. But how do he you is. feel about him getting a simulator? I'm bored generally. He starts <laughs> talking about it. Him and Soper, we go out for dinner, and him and Soper <laughs> start talking about Sims, and the rest of it just go. Told you, <laughs> told you to do that. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I do uh, like playing uh, on it when I go around. Though I do, I do like having a wee go when I go around. I think it's a good place to start. I think the the, the virtual racing world um, was offered an opportunity during the first lockdown to really assert itself, and I I personally feel it missed the opportunity. I think there was a few 
few things went on that, that rather sullied the name of it. I'm not anti it. I'm just not into it. So I can see why other people are into it. I'm not. Um, but how do you feel the virtual racing world came out of the lockdown situations, given they looked like they were going to take over? Let the man who actually did it speak about this, because I had no involvement with it. <laughs> yeah, apart from talking... When, when it was happening, Marino was in our bubble and he would uh, he would be sitting through in the, one of the other rooms drinking wine. Um, and I'd come through all sort of sweaty and knackered after crashing yet again. And I'd start talking about it. He goes, I don't, I don't want to know. I've got no interest in hearing about it. Can we change the subject? I've already had to watch it. I, I at least watched it. I mean... Uh, I think more people were exposed to it, put it that way. Um, and... I think there's a, there's a whole bunch of people that take it very seriously and are very good at it. Um, I think the hard thing for uh, us that have raced is that maybe we don't take it as seriously as we possibly should, as, as, as the other people do. So um, I think that did it a disservice because there's some, you can have some good racing on there. Does it replicate what happens on the racetrack? No, um, because the danger factor is completely gone. And I think that, gives uh, some of the moves that happen. I think that's maybe why why those moves happen. Um, but I think more people were exposed to it. And um, it was it was entertainment. It definitely, you know, Formula E, we did this whole thing with it, all the whole field raced. And we would commentate on it and it was all set up. That And I, then I did that racing legends thing, which they gave me, they sent me this the other day. Great ah, cool. Oh, yeah, okay. In, my, in the colours. And we did that for everybody that raced there. Um, don't forget the beer. Co- the beer was even better than the model. The, oh, the beer was awesome, yeah, because one of the sponsors was a beer company. So, yeah, it was. Uh, I, I, think, I, John, I, I enjoyed it. So this 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 links back into the first, let's say, career-based question. Dario, you raced in very high-consequence formula. You know, you were someone who put your body on the line. Um, you had some enormous accidents in amongst your huge successes. You broke your back, ended your career effectively. So you know what it's like to make a decision on a racing track that could potentially alter your ability to walk. So how, how does that make you feel when you're sim racing and you're watching kids just stick up the inside and think they're really racing when they, when they must be doing it without consequence? Yeah, that's the thing. The, the, the lack of consequence changes it. And I'm, I'm sure if you look at um, some drivers from generations ago when they watch today's drivers um and with the, the sort of the somewhat lack of consequence i'm sure they, they feel the same thing um obviously as you said indycar is probably a bit more high consequence than than other formulas but formula one certainly um proved that you can still you know have some serious consequences with, <laughs> with roman Grosjean's crash um, and i think that was a that was a timely reminder that um no matter how much runoff area it's amazing that places um, you can get a, you can put a racing car and you can make the circuits as safe as you possibly think you can. But, you know, a driver will do something and it'll put the car in a position you never thought. Right. I think um, we're not going to get Marino into this conversation. We carry on with Sims. It might be the best opportunity ever to keep Marino quiet. It normally isn't, but actually we'll, <laughs> we'll move this back. Right. So for people that don't, that there are some people that don't know the Frankie T story, how, how did it, how did you two get into motorsport? How did you get into cars? Where did it all begin? Give us one of you. Give us where it started. I want the two Frankiti brothers, dashing beautiful children with with the world at their feet, in Scotland in the mid eighties. How did it start? Come on, tell me about it. He's five years older than me, so let him start. I'm going to do all the talking here, which is very unusual. Work for me. 
um, so when I was, um, I'd have been five, right about when Marino showed up, with five-year age difference. Um, when his life I was ruined. My life was ruined, yeah. I started to become aware of Formula One. Um, I'd sit and watch it with my dad. My dad raced, our dad raced. Um, hang on, everything's falling out. Our dad raced for fun. It was his hobby, he raced Formula Ford, and then late 80s, he bought a you know, March Formula Two car, raced around Ingolston with that. And so that was where my, my interest was sort of peaked. And actually, if you can see there, that's a row of these cars that my grandmother, our grandmother used to buy me when, when, I, when she'd go to Italy. And I, I found them recently on, um, uh, on an auction website. <laughs> but that was where, that's where it all started for me. Um, I had motorbikes. Uh, I started racing cars, uh, carts in 1984. And um, Marino sort of came along behind me and um, he got the cast offs, quite honestly, you know, because I, I was the older, the older son. I uh, got all the new stuff. And, and when Marino came along um, to start racing, he unfortunately, yeah, he got, he got my cast offs and, and never got the attention that I did. So when he went and and started his racing career, whether it was in carts or in cars later, he, he completely did his own thing, got his head down and, uh, and did it all on his own. I think with motorbikes, I remember just to get back, I, I got PB50 when I think it was three or four. So it's funny, even now, as dangerous as they are, I feel more natural even on a bike than I do. I'm not very good, but I still feel very comfortable on a bike because that's how it started. But with racing, I think when I got into it, Dario took it really serious for me. So he, <laughs> he got, he made, yeah, he really put the pressure on. And that, he, I found that took a bit of the sort of fun away from it early on. Um, Sorry, son. <laughs> no, that's all right. But when, it, when, when, when did you both think it was going to become a career? When, when did you, I mean, Dario, did you ever think you'd do anything else? Um, Marina, I've known you longer and, and know you better personally because, I, so I know what you've been through, but. But, and there were times when it was obvious it wasn't going to be the only thing you could do because you needed to do something else to make some bunts. But with Dario, was it always, was it always your only career? Um, well, I went through a, a stage. Well, as a, as a kid, you always think, you know, you can be an astronaut or a race. You know, you can do, you can be whatever you want when you're sort of eight, ten years old. And then, you know, I started racing, winning in carts. I thought, this is what I'm going to do. And as I became a, a teenager, the realities of, of racing and, and life and sport and the financial realities took over. And I thought, this might not happen. Um, and it became, it ultimately came down to mum and dad being mad enough to remortgage their house to, for my first year in racing, which then allowed, um, when I was racing, Jackie Stewart saw me and um, he then took me under his wing, brought all the sponsors and that started it. So when I started racing for Jackie, that was probably, the first time I thought this might actually, it might actually work out. But I, I had a couple of jobs. Did the, the, the sort of the racing school thing? I worked um, at Jim Russell. Worked for some manufacturers. Um, and I drove a two-car transporter as well, which was uh, I used to deliver cars, which was, it was really bizarre because I'd be driving this eight-one-four Mercedes down the M6. Um, I had a blowout one morning, and. I had to change the, the tire on the hard shoulder of the M6. And I was literally dressed in my Paul Stewart racing team gear because, which we were sponsored by Boss at the time, um, 
because I was going to meet King Hussein of Jordan at Paul Stewart Racing, but I was driving a transporter down the M6. So my life was a little kind of weird. <laughs> so I parked, I parked the truck around the corner from Paul Stewart Racing, ran in, had a good old wash, got rid of the, 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 the dirt from changing the tyre and went and met King Hussein. So life life had its odd moments. With um, So the single-seater career from, from the start was, was pretty stellar. And then you were one of the first people to, it seems to me, you know, I was an old sport reader back then and your name was there. And it, there was this assumption you were just going to walk into F1. Um, and then when you didn't, it seems to me you were the first person to pragmatically say, I'm not going to bash my head against this door and make myself bitter and twisted. I'm going to go to America and, um, and make my fortune, which is exactly what you did. But you were the first person to have the bollocks to do that and not to be the bitter one that hung around the paddock trying to make it work. Um, is that a fair assessment of how you felt about it at the time? So Marino was really involved in, in this sort of this time because um, I'd, I'd been living in Milton Keynes. Marino was still up at school in Scotland. Um, and I, then I got a call from, from Mercedes and I went to, to test the DTM car. And that's where the, the, the sort of the, the divergence from, I guess, the F1 path happened. Um, yeah. And with DTM, it came down to I was I was racing for Paul Stewart Racing, um, but I just I wasn't comfortable on the team. Um, one year Formula Three, I wasn't comfortable on the team. Um, Mercedes said, "Look, we're gonna if you come and drive for us, we'll pay you this amount of money." And trust me, this was a fortune for me. And we're gonna give you a C thirty six company car. And I remember standing with Jan Magnussen in the car park because we were both being considered for this drive and he said, I said will you do it Jan and he said if you give me one of those company cars I will <laughs> and that was it <laughs> and um, so I went there and I drove I drove for Mercedes for a couple of years and they I got to test for McLaren um, and that actually coincided when I left to go to America um, then McLaren came and said oh would you come and be test driver but it wasn't going to work with what I'd done in America and the American thing came down to Mercedes helping me get there. There's a guy, Paul Morgan, who was one of the partners in Elmore. I sat next to him at the Christmas party in, at Mercedes in 1996. And he said to me, what do you want to do? Um, and I'd had those two cracking years in DTM, so much fun. And um, with those crazy cars, with all the bits on them. And I said, I want to go to, I want to go to America. And he sort of looked at me and he said, well, I'll see what I can do. And literally a month later, the phone rang and, uh, and he'd organized it. And off, uh, off I went to the American Adventure. Um, had a couple of chances to, to come back and test F1 cars with the chance of racing them, but it just never, it, it, I had a horrible test for Jaguar. Um, and then just, it was never the right, the right time. So I stayed in America and uh, had a good time. It Remember that okay. first C36? Remember that first C36? Because it was, he had Klaus Ludwig's yeah. old company car because he took, basically took Klaus's seat. And the first one, Klaus had been wrapping it around the Nürburgring, but it had all these special bits on it. It was the fastest thing on four wheels. That was so fast, oh. wasn't it? There's oh. a picture somewhere of, of um, I had the old camera, like an old style, I think 35 mil camera, and I'm battering down the Autobahn and the, the, it's off the clock. Remember I had those big sort of yeah. dials in the middle yeah. and it's right off the clock, all the way around to the, you know, the, the bottom of the dash basically. And I'm, click <laughs> and somewhere there's this picture the um i, I love the, the the dtm stuff 
it's it's fascinating because you were in that era when you know they, they weren't far off F1 cars in terms of the tech they were deploying. They were as far away from being a saloon car as you could imagine. Um, and you arrived, and Bert Schneider, he speaks still with wide eyes about it. When you when you bring him onto that subject, there he goes, "Well, this I was the man." And then this bloody kid from Scotland turned up and basically stuck it to me. I think what makes Burnt so great is that he loved the challenge you brought to him. Clearly, he didn't resent it. He just loved the fact he had to try and up his game to try and beat you. But there's some he, mega footage. Of, and, and also, where's that race where I think you just duffed up someone in, a, in an alpha? In an alpha. It might have been... Suzuka. Suzuka, yeah. And the alpha pit wall about <laughs> back close from jumping onto the track to lob stuff at you. <laughs> it, was, it was a really really quiet press conference with Christian Danner and I that day because it was Christmas dinner Christmas dinner he wasn't happy and um, <laughs> we were we were delighted but Schneider was the best teammate man I, that was the thing I went there as a 21 year old kid and German team I didn't speak German and um, a guy called Gerhard Unger was running the whole thing and so for wh- some why reason did choo- why did they choose a, sorry to interrupt why did they choose a Scottish kid. I mean, obviously, your talent must have been precocious because they must have had a full lineup of baby Schumachers that could have gone in. It's a hell of a punt taking a lad didn't even speak the language. Yeah, we, we went and did a test. I did. We, being Jan Magnuson and I, went and did this test. Oliver Gavin did the test too, and um, Jan and I both broke that record. And so they went on him, and we want him. And <laughs> <clears throat> and Burn for some reason, Burn and, and Gerhard just took me under the wing. And they, they just, I mean, Marino time, Marino's at some of the races, they just, for some reason, it all just clicked and Bernd was the best teammate. I mean, he was this god. And he was just mega. We had so much fun. I remember staying at his house one day in, in Cologne and I get this bang on the door because I would like to sleep in. Okay, come on. We're going to do something fun. Oh God, we're going to go running again. I don't want to go running again. <laughs> And so he says, no, 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 get dressed. We're going, we're going to see something fun. Okay, this could be anything. So we go around the corner. We walk around the corner and we go to this big house. And the two doors go up. And there's two Bugatti EB110s and an F40 LM sitting. And he said, okay, come on. We're going to take these Bugattis for service. My friend owns them and I know you want to drive one. So we took these two Bugattis from uh, Cologne up to Brabus, I think it was. And it was the first time I broke 200 miles an hour, chasing him down the autobahn in this Bugatti EB110. So that was the kind of stuff that uh, that happened when, when uh, Mr. Schneider was around. First time, so the first time I met Marino was at the Nürburgring in uh, probably around 07. And... Um, so I'd barely spoken to him in, in, in he was in, he was in Tim Parker racing in a, in a cup car. We were both racing cup cars in a, either a 24 hour race or a VLN. I think it was 24 hour race. And um, I'll let him jump in in a minute. Anyhow, um, we explained pleasant, we sort of exchanged pleasantries in the race truck. And I thought, what a nice guy. Actually, I don't normally think what a nice guy. I normally just think knob when I meet people. Cause I'm that, as you know, I'm that kind of miserable bastard. But I thought, what a nice bloke. Cause he, what struck me about him was he was interested in road cars. I've, I've got a bit of thing about racing drivers that don't like, normal cars and both of you I know will come onto it love good performance cars but a lot of racing drivers aren't interested in road cars and I always think that's a little bit disingenuous so we had a very quick chat about some Porsche business and the next time I saw Marino after that I came over a section of the track called 
Flugplatz. And it looked like a small passenger aircraft had attempted to land on the circuit, got it wrong, and then crashed down the, the, that part of the track. I'd never seen I'd never seen a crash like it at the Nürburgring. I still haven't, actually. And at the end of all this debris, there was the crumpled shell of what... You couldn't even tell it was a Porsche. It was just... Excuse the French. It was fucked. But the, there was no body in it. And then as I was coming over the crest, the team radio came on and said, oh, be careful. Marino's just had a massive stack <laughs> over that part of the track. <laughs> and I saw him later on and he was completely unperturbed, really. And I, then I thought that's the difference between a real racing driver and a journalist like me. He was just getting ready, prepared to go and drive the next racing car. Mate, that was, we've never discussed it publicly, that was an amazing smack. And I don't think you yeah. should necessarily be here after that one. It was massive. <laughs> If it hadn't been a Porsche, I don't think I would have been. It was a 996 Cup car. Um, and I'll never forget, I came over and it, as it landed, it just went left. I had no idea what happened. Wheels were straight, all the stuff you do. And it turned out that the drive left-hand drive shaft had snapped. So it just turned it hard left. Um, and I remember the first impact, having my eyes open and the doors <laughs> flew off. The, the, the windscreen came out and the left front came up through the windscreen. So at that point, I closed my eyes. <laughs> and then I remember feel, for the first, one of the first times ever feeling the hands device holding my head. And then it was just like, oh, that was an impact. And I'm thinking, oh my, every time I thought it was over, it kept going and going and going. And when I came, I stopped. There's just nothing, as you say, nothing left. And I do remember sitting, just having climbed out and looking down the track and seeing you coming over <laughs> in the 997. And oh my God, it's huge. But you're right, it was like they, they made me go to hospital and then get back and there was a message from, I was driving with uh, Andretti Green in America and the Acura Island B2 and they're like, oh, we need you to come for a test in two days. I'm like, Oof, this is going to suck. But because of the safety equipment, I didn't hurt. It was unbelievable. I think I dissipated all the energy as I went on. It was, uh, it, so we never really discussed this. Um, how, how do you become a racing driver in the shadow of your big brother who's already doing a fantastic job? Seems to me that you went about it with an enormous amount of good grace and a huge energy and, and you know, you achieved amazing things. You won Sebring, dude. I mean, that's an amazing thing. I, I, I'd kill to, to, to bloody win Sebring. So, but, but it can't have been easy. It must've been tough. It's, it had its good points and its bad points. I think it opens yeah. a lot of doors. Like two weeks before DTM was canceled, I met, who was the boss alpha at that point, Dario? Giorgio Pianta. Giorgio Pianta. So I meet Giorgio Pianta at Silverstone in the summer. Lawrence Foster from Autosport says, hey, this is Dario's little brother Marino. He's like, do you race? And I'm like, I was racing a six, had a, no, I tested a 1600 Formula Ford at the time. Tested one car. Giorgio's like, come and drive our DTM car. I'd love to see what you can do. Okay. Next thing, email or a, a fax. I think a fax comes from him. Come to Mugello. I'm like, Daddy, what's Magello like? He's like, oh, for fuck's sake, you're going to kill yourself. <laughs> and then, then, fortunately for all involved, the uh, championship was completely cancelled two weeks before it, the test happened. Uh, so I'd forgotten about that. Oh, man, that was mega. And um, I just took every opportunity I could get. You know, I worked at Knock Hill at the race school. They were really good, giving me a place to, to, to work at the race school. On the weekends that the race school wasn't on and there was races, you would empty the toilets and sorry, clean the toilets and empty the bins. And then I remember Dario. You, you got, got it the right around when you were working there, otherwise, yeah. otherwise you wouldn't have lasted longer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
I tell you, whatever your job is, you do it properly. You do the best job you can. Um, the and then I I got glandular fever and I was ill for a while and I I hadn't really done much karting, but I got this deal together to do the winter series. I remember Dario saying to me like, right, here's what the budget is. He says, I will give you fifty percent. I'll match. No, I'll match every pound that you can get. And he obviously thought I'd get about five hundred quid. So I then went and found <laughs> half the budget, and he had to stunt for half the budget. So that was fun. Look at that big brother face. <laughs> Yeah. And then it was really it was really around this time that I met Kay Wilson, who had been the team coordinator at uh, Porsche, at the factory Porsche team, and worked with some amazing drivers. And she took me under her wing, managed me, and got me just some really cool opportunities. And I stumbled through single, two years of single-seaters with not very good equipment. And to be honest, probably not the right attitude either, because everyone expected, because I was Dario's brother, to be this complete driver. And because I'd been around tracks my whole life, I expected, because I'd been around it, that I'd somehow learned something or had experience. And it wasn't until I sort of sat down with myself and thought, well, hang on, what should you know? Nothing, because you've not done anything. And that was when you know, I started to get some success. But that was also, I was driving really bad equipment. So the first time I got decent equipment was I tested for I tested a Porsche, a British GT Porsche 996R at the time, GTR, and then, or GT3R, yeah. And then the next year, Porsche Cars Great Britain had a junior program. They chose me as one of the drivers. And that was the big step. That was, I then had good equipment and straight away I had speed just because I'd been so used to trying to get everything out of, out of bad equipment. And that was and really where it started. Car. Oh yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I had a Boxster as well. 21, I went from a, 405 turbo diesel and I lived near Bedford and it was the same colour as all the taxis so everyone thought it was a taxi <laughs> to, to a brand new Boxster um, and I, like my Dario had always taught me like if you ever get a chance to be paid you take it whatever it is because then you're a professional and then it's and that's what I did so it was there was a lot of ups and downs the, the thing for me is it never seemed to get even when I had the success it never took off from there do you remember um, that first time at Daytona yeah, it was good. When you went, but what year was that? We went to Daytona and Marino had never been there. 2002, never been there, jumped in the car and the test, test aim was quickest of anybody. And I was, I was like starting about like thinking how, that's my wee brother. I think it was two <laughs> seconds up the road and they got half, they got within half a second. But this was the, this was the ridiculous thing at the time. I'll never forget, we're in Nashville at Dario's house, me, him and my cousin, McKaylee. And I'm like, I've got this chance at Daytona, so I'm going to go. He's like, all right, when is it? And I told him, he's like, I'll come with you. So then at the time, Dario's Billy Big Bananas and we, he rents this little Learjet. So I fly into Daytona without a pot to piss in in a Learjet, <laughs> do, the, do the test, do five laps in the car. That's all I get, fastest in the test. And then we leave. And it's like, it was the weirdest, it was the weirdest <laughs> thing, but very funny. So when did you, You've always loved streetcars, haven't you, both of you? I think that's mm. what appeal. You know, I love the fact that you both love streetcars, and, and and obviously Marino and I work on a. Uh, he does more than I do on a, on a particular streetcar. We'll discuss in a minute. But um, so, Dario, what was when was when did you drop your first serious paycheck on a motor car, <laughs> and what was it? <laughs> the day after he got it. <laughs> <laughs> that's the wrong way to do it. <laughs> it, it depends what you mean by 
serious. And we talk it. So the first, I won the Young Driver of the Year in uh, 1992, McLaren Autosport Young Driver of the Year. And I might have used some of that money to buy a Mark 216 Valve Golf. Yes. Which was, my dad bought it at an auction and a set of lower end springs and a set of 15 inch wheels. And removing and the white the, steering wheel. And removing the white leather steering wheel was, um, it was a mega thing and it went like the wind. And I loved that wee car and I lived in Bedford at the time. I lived in a place called Harold and it got nicked. So that was probably the first time I dropped. For, at that point, it was, it was serious cash. Um, it was two and a half grand. And then... Uh, well, it, it, the, it's, it's a, it, the serious cash, the measurement of that is a, is a percentage of what you actually have in the bank. So if, if you're worth a billion and you spend and you buy a yeah. Chiron, that's not serious cash. But if yeah. you've got, if you haven't got a pot to piss in, as Marino said, and you drop, and you drop eight ninths of what you've got on a car, that's a lot of money. Aye, that was, okay, in that case, that was serious cash. And then the next thing I bought was a... Was, ooh, 1995, I bought a 3.2 three Speedster. 3.2 three Speedster. Well, that's, uh -huh. that's an interesting car to buy because that's not an obvious... Cognoscenti car to buy, but actually they are cool as you know what. They're great, much better than the 964 Speedster as well. Yeah, I had a 964 Speedster until recently, but I've got a model of it somewhere. I think it might be in Scotland. I've got a model of the, the 32 Speedster and I, I loved it. And it, I drove it everywhere on the red limiter, everywhere, <laughs> flat out, as hard as it would go. Uh, actually, my our great friend Stuart has owned it since. Um, yeah, yeah, he bought it from me in 1996 when I sold it to buy a um, 348. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you're listening to this on an audio file, it's a Zoom call. Both Frankie's Frankie brothers have put their hand, their heads in their hands in shame <laughs> and are looking at the ground. What a shed. <laughs> what a shed. I love that story about when Montezemolo took over at Ferrari. And he was apparently one of his first days, whether this is apocryphal or not. And he had to go to the airport. And he said, give us a car. So they gave him a 348. And he oh. came back about 10 minutes later and said to an engineer, is this what we're selling people? <laughs> and, they, and, they went, and, he went, and he went, yes. He said, well, we have to start again then, don't we? Because this is terrible. What a, anyway, what a lump of crap it was. <laughs> and I got in trouble because um, I drove it to Silverstone DTM race instead of taking my Mercedes company car. It was bright yellow. And, uh, it was bright yellow. Uh, and yeah, that whew, Norbert Haug was not happy. I'm not um, I'm not bloody surprised he's spending a lot of money to promote his brand. And you've turned up in a fiat. <laughs> well, it didn't break down. That was one thing. <laughs> what um, on the one occasions. So the 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 streetcar thing has always resonated strongly with both of you. Um you've suddenly got what happens when you this is to Dario. To come to Marino afterwards. What happens when you do realise that you've made it? That you're, you know, you're, you've, you've had a couple of years in in DTM. You've gone to America, and it's happening. It's really happening now. Like you're, I can remember turning on an episode of some some sitcom, and there's Dario Franchitti on the freaking sitcom. Suddenly Susan. Remember, what was it called? Look that up. Suddenly Susan. Him and Eric Idle. Yeah, I mean, what the, the, you you've become part of the vernacular then. And also, he was really crap at playing himself. <laughs> I was terrible. It was awful. Yeah, thanks, you know. Yeah, but yeah, hold on, hold on. I did, I did a, I did the Chris Evans season of 
Top Gear lads. We've all got something in our closet. There's skeletons <laughs> everywhere, mate. So, so don't worry about it. So, but so at that point, the, the life you must be thinking, where, how have I come from this, you know, fairly normal provincial life who's gotten to this? You know, I can hire a Learjet to take my brother to go and do five laps of Daytona. Yeah, well, I did put it this way. There are times you lose perspective. And I definitely, I think everybody goes through an arsehole stage um, when things like that happen to them. And I definitely went through an arsehole stage. Um, but it was always, basically, when I did well, I would reward myself with buying cars. So the first thing I did, I got my first big signing bonus. I stomped out and bought a 355, which I still have. Um, then I started winning some races and I got a, a new contract and I bought an F40 and it sort of, it kind of went from there. And then when I started winning, I, I kind of bought some stuff and then it, then it went a bit mad when I started winning Indy 500 and stuff and then we could really, um, you know. Explain um, to, explain fun. to the European viewers or listeners how the earnings how it works over there because it's quite different to to form in formula one you get a contract and that's what you get paid isn't it basically there might be some win bonuses and everything else but but there's there's, there's prize money over there isn't there and and the way the, and the indy 500 is so big on its own can you just describe how that i'm not looking for, for just you know disclose any sums i'm just saying how, hmm. how does it work structurally well, it's actually quite similar f1's got not prize money but it's got points money that they don't really talk about um, they don't tell you what the amounts are. It's all quite opaque. Um, but in, in IndyCar, you get your salary, then you get win bonuses, you get you know all you get prize money. But then of course, the Indy 500 is the is the big the big fish. If you can win that, it's sort of it's it's millions of dollars to win it. And uh, that so that was um, as I say that would that definitely winning that one allowed uh, allowed more car purchases. It was quite nice. How many times did you win it? Three. Ah, there we go. <laughs> Just the three times. Yeah, so all this time, Marino, you're you're. I presume you're over there. You're racing P two anyway. Are you, you LMP two years or just before that? Uh, it's kind of mixed in in GTs and then into LMP cars. Uh, yeah. It was interesting. You talk about when you think you've made it. I've never had that because every time I thought it was starting to pick up some momentum, it would stop dead. Um, so I, ne I, ne I never had that thought but yeah I was I was in and out there so I was still I lived in America for one year in 2005 and his him and his ex-wife's guest house which was tremendous I didn't have I was getting paid absolutely nothing but I did have a lot of fun because he would be away all the time and it'd be like some really tasty things sitting in the garage and he's like you really need to keep them moving for me I'm like yeah that's not a problem um, Apart from that 996 Turbo S that I messed up. Oh, God, yeah. But <laughs> Turbo S cab, which he then got these champion wheels and lowered it. And it was a, it just upset the car to the point it was a death trap. Total death trap. So, yeah, I, I was there and it was, they, they were good days. I mean, racing in America is. I love racing in America. I really feel like a fish out of water in Europe. I don't enjoy racing in Europe. I, I enjoy the historic stuff, but if you're talking professionally, America is just better. The competition is no easier. The tracks are, for me, better. Uh, yeah. There's still some classics, obviously, in Europe, Spa, Nürburgring, Open Park, ones like that. But 
in America, they're all like that. And off the track, you know, you're having I, more I, fun. You know, can I tell the story, the Sebring story? The first Which one? The, the, the LMP yes, test. Well, you're going to have to now. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was good. So um, I was driving for Andretti, Andretti Green at the time. I had a, I had a really crap 2006. Um, in 2007, they're sort of, they say, oh, we can't, we can't do this. We can't afford to pay you that. But I was like, all right. So I did a, a, a sort of, a, well, I call it a prize money heavy deal. But I said, right, they had an LMP. They're going to drive, had an Acura LMP2 program. I said, right, okay, I'll, I'll do a deal with you. I'll drive it uh, two or three races. But I want my brother to drive it at the the other races. You know, he's proved himself. You know what he can do. Give him a chance. And they went, yeah, okay. So Marino and I show up at the first test at Sebring. And Brian Herta, who would be my teammate in IndyCar and won, you know, won a few races in IndyCar, um, was, was going to be Marino's teammate. So they show up on the short course at Sebring. And the team are saying, okay, Marino, if you get within... Two, I think it was two seconds. If you get within two seconds of Brian today, we'll be really happy. Okay, so just two seconds. Just play yourself in. And I think within 10 laps, he was a second up the road. <laughs> it was get in absolutely astounding. And then the first race at St. Pete um, ended up leading the race. And that was against the Audis. They had big diesel Audis as well. And he, it just, oh, he clicked with that, that car. Race. I remember footage from that race. Yeah, those so cars. That, those that cars. Mighty. Those cars. Did you share? Did you share the car together? No, we did. Tested it together. We yeah. never raced it. Yeah, I, I did Sebring and Long Beach, and then at the end of the year, uh, 07, I left the team. I went to do NASCAR, and Marino had done a fabulous job in the car, but the team were upset with me for leaving. So Marino was collateral damage in that whole bloody thing. That was the. Um, so Marino, at the moment, Marino and I are involved in this thing called the Singer DLS. Now, you touch on this for a bit. Um, it came about because we've got a mutual friend called Mason Farwas who um, runs that project. And he and uh, at the time, you just had this dalliance with the Ford GT program, which wasn't a happy ending for you, Marino, was it? No. Um, and uh, and um, you needed some gainful employment, and this seemed like the right thing to do. It definitely is the right thing to do. Tell me how you feel about that car when it's being driven quite quickly on the right road at the right time. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I, it excites me 
the thought of never of finishing up the tuning of it and then having shaken all the cars down and never driving it again makes me want to cry. Um, I took Dario for a curry in it uh, earlier in the year. And the first time I opened it up, all he said was, there's no way that's only 500 horsepower. It was brilliant. It's incredible. The engine, which we never thought would be a, such a big part of it, along with it being lightweight, that engine, I can even slide it about because it's so playful. It's ridiculous. It's a... Uh... It's a funny beastie, isn't it? Because it just combination of weighing nothing and having it just feels so naughty above seven seven and a half thousand RPM that they keep going. Your ears are going, oh, should I be doing this? And then you look down and the numbers are horrendous, but it just feels so fast. It's just one of those cars that feels so fast. It's that. It's also that independent front suspension. That first, you're in a short wheelbase nine six four, and the first time you turn into a corner, your head just goes, sorry, what? Kind of your equilibrium <laughs> gets a bit funny, like you've gone off all rouge for the first time. You're like, sorry, what just happened there? It's um, it's a spectacular car. I mean, COVID's been a total pain in the backside for the program, but next year, you know, we'll get the cars to the customers, and it's going to be it's going to be mega. How much? Dario, thoughts? Have you have you ever have you have you owned a singer yet, Dario? What color would you like? Oh no! <laughs> come on. Yeah. Has he done it? Is he dropped? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm at carbon stage. Oh, no. Well, Ed came well, round. Ed, Ed had, had his one, and I, I had a look at that, and I thought, that's absolutely beautiful, but I want, to, I want the full experience. I want the, the full thing. So spoke to dear Maz and um, the boys at Singer, and, yeah. And it's, on, well, it's not on its way yet, but I'm, although I do think they've sent me three samples of the same paint this week. I'm quite particular ah, about the Joe paint. Ma- the Joe McCarry. I think they've done the Joe McCarry trick of, yeah, here's option one, two, and three. And I'm outside today looking at these options going, <laughs> one, two, and three are the same. So I, I, it, God, I'm hoping for a mid, it depends what happens with all this nonsense, but I'm hoping for a mid, mid-year delivery. Yeah. Um, if I can ever make up my mind on final final specs. It's... Um, no, the DLS, I think, is just a mighty thing. Um, I think we're quite spoiled. I mean, I'm, I'm working with Gordon Murray on the T50. Between the DLS, the T50, the, you know, for the right person, the the Valkyrie, um, pretty cool. But I, this, this my singers, I call it dad spec. It's got sunroof, it's got rear seats for the kids. Um, but it doesn't, I've got the racing thingy seats, though, so they're going to have to climb over and get in the back because yeah. I, I draw the line somewhere. That's all right. They do that in my 911. They they quite like that. They like they pretend they're in the Dukes of Hazard. So we need to touch on that now. The T50 thing with with Gordon's really really interesting um, and heartening for people like me that want to one day drive one, because I think you're a racing driver that has an understanding of how a road car should drive. And quite often when racing drivers are told to define road car dynamics, I get a bit scared because you just end up with a racing car on the road, which isn't always a very good thing. So you must be very excited to get involved with that. I am. I'm. I'm massively excited to do it. It was. Uh, it's one of those things I couldn't quite believe I was getting to do it. If that makes sense, because I think you know, Gordon's my. He's one of my heroes, and he's. He's just so cool. He's just so interesting to hang around with and ask questions. And every day it's a school day, and you learn something. And um, he's got very clear ideas of, of what he wants from this from this car. Um, and that's brilliant because I think his his um, you know his baseline 
is is pretty cool. <laughs> you know what he's what he's done in the past, um, and so it's 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 been brilliant to, to just to do what we've done so far. Um, I can't wait to drive it. Um, it's it's just it's going to be phenomenal. And then to get involved in the actual intricacies of of developing it. You know, some you guys have done with with um with the the DLS with Singer and watching the the level of detail Marino's gone into it every day with it, this car. Um, I'm I'm super excited about it and um, the, um, can't wait to drive it. Sorry, Ed. Say that again, Edward. Have they got the engine on the bench now for the T50? The engine is on the bench, and George the mule is has got the engine in the back too, and is doing uh is doing all the boring stuff at the moment um, that has to be done, you know, emissions and all that, you know, the calibrations and um, all the stuff that means when you're driving along with it uh, well first of all you can drive along with it in the road um, and that it's just putting the, the, the small details so it actually you sit in traffic with it and it doesn't we've all driven those cars with the light switch throttle that every time you're stuck in London traffic or in M25 you just you hate the person that did <laughs> did that so it's got to be one of, one of the things that Gordon's talking about and it has to be that way is it has to be able to be used and it has to be perfect in all you know all, all, all types of use so um that to me it's I, I love taking a car on a you know whether it's the back roads of scotland or up in the alps or any of those places so this is this is the perfect thing well if Marie, I seeing... the day you get to drive it you're welcome to take me for a curry that day <laughs> <laughs> well I, I remember seeing you two talking about road trips I remember seeing you two rock up at le mans one year when i was down there doing some work you'd arrived in a I think you had a red crow GT um and that looked like exactly the correct way to use that type of car if you, if you, if you buy these things and you don't do that in them what's the freaking point in owning them I'm that car I'm was funny so it was so stuffed for crap wasn't it Marino it was oh, so we had I've got pictures of the, sh the shoes down the, the back of the seats underwear you know the little door pockets <laughs> inside those the, we had our underwear stashed and socks and those it was, we couldn't get another bit in there because I wanted to, we wanted the top off, wanted the roof off, and of course that takes up what little spaces is, is in the front. But I'm, I'm, I'm funny that I look under one, like one of the car and it's all been either fresh restored or it's you know beautiful and new, and I really struggle to when they're in the wet and they get all dirty and that sort of stuff. So I do struggle with that. But um, you know, like they, they, when the Cur GT we from coming back from that Le Mans trip, I got caught in a load of rain. I went to Reading for um, its annual, and I got the guys there to take every, all the, the floors off, everything out, and make sure it was cleaned underneath to, you know, within an inch of its life. And that's what, like Rich Tipper with the F40, like Rich, can you, can you, do what you do? And of course, he did what he did, and the car came back um, just better than you. So I'm getting more relaxed about using these things in the way they, they should be used. It's, Remember when we killed the three five five? Yes, we did. So, so he 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 was recovering from his first broken back, and we were at a Celtic. Celtic were playing a European game, and we got back, and we got back at to Parkhead. his house in Scotland at Parkhead, and we got back to his house near Edinburgh near one in the morning. He's like, "What are you up to?" <laughs> like, not much. Do you want to go to Monaco and see McNish? Yeah, let's do that. So we jump in the three five five. It's got straight through tubies at the time, and we pack it full of stuff. He's got a lovely velvet cushion off his sofa. For his back, because his back's broken, he's just out of a back break. That came from Ikea. That cushion I, came Ikea. from Ikea. 
Yeah. So then we set off. And by the time we get to the Channel Tunnel, we want to shoot ourselves because the drone from the tubies, we've got toilet paper stuffed in our ears. <laughs> and also the front, the car had, we doubled the mileage on the car in a week. And the car hadn't been used much. The front dampers collapsed. So then the thing was, even in the motorway speed, was twitchy as hell. And we get we get down near Monaco. We're like, right, let's truck it home because we're meant to be going up from there up to Germany to watch our little cousin in DTM. We're like, right, let's truck it back, sell it something, and then we hit the tunnels at Nice between Nice and uh, <laughs> Monaco and gave it the big one. And oh, this is brilliant. And then we nearly got arrested uh, coming into Monaco doing nothing, but they just obviously really dodgy. And then we drove it up through the Alps, up the Stelvio, down the Stelvio Pass in the snow. And yeah, that was epic. It hurt that our was ears, but it was so good. They are, they're still beautiful cars as well, aren't they? There's something about a 355. In fact, if someone says to me they don't like the way a 355 looks, I'm not sure I could be their friend. No. <laughs> it's just a great thing, isn't it? It's just a great, you know, that, that five-valve head, the noise it makes, it's just, it's it's fast enough to be interesting but it's not so fast that it's you know you're you're constantly sort of worried about going to jail driving it but it, i mean you go back to go back to 95 96 when they first came out do you remember oh. how fast they were yeah you were like this is a spaceship this is and now you kind of go it's it's, it's a nice right. little car you, you, marino's just touched on it there i have to ask you this i don't know many people that have had broken their back twice the anatomy of an accident in in indycar what do you do you have that aura the moment it's going on that everything slows down you know something bad's going to happen to you or is it just a surprise and you come around and you think oh my back's not right talk us through it i know it's macabre but i, I want to know because it's it's gladiatorial not, not many people have been through yeah. this shit so the first back the first time i broke my back was on uh, on a motorbike um, so that was a different thing. I had an MV, I had an MV Augusta Senna, and um, Marino and I were out playing, and the bike broke and went over, and that was it. Um, the so the I mean, so I, all accidents are different. I mean, you guys know that you've all had accidents, but the the the, the sort of the two two of the big ones. I had one in Michigan when Dan Weldon and I touched wheels about, I don't know, 215 miles an hour or something, 220. And the car took off. And that was a, that was one thing, one type of accident because it went on for a long time. And I remember, it's funny watching the Grosjean thing last week, I had to switch it off. Um, because I remember taking off and literally thinking, oh shit, this isn't good. And as it's taken off, I'm, I'm, my foot's still flat. And I hear the thing hitting the limiter because the wheels are off the ground now and it's going up in there. And I thought, oh no. And I thought, well, please don't hit the fence. Please, I knew if I hit the fence, I was in trouble. I was like, please don't hit the fence. Um, then I thought, I wonder, I wonder if I'm going to, I wonder if I'm going to die. Oh, I don't, I don't really want to die. Um, I hope it doesn't hurt. Um, and it was all very quiet at this point. So I opened my eyes and I was about 20 feet above the track with cars going underneath me. Oh God, this is rough. Is it how much, I'm, then in my head, it's just how much is this going to hurt when it stops? And what happened was I landed and I landed on top of Scott Dixon, 
whose helmets, that one there, landed on top of Scott. And it was no harder than falling over on, on the grass playing football. And I, I started laughing. And I'm like, oh, it didn't hurt. I can't believe it didn't hurt. The car was upside down at this point and it's sliding along. And then the roll hoop snapped. So my head starts dragging, the helmet's dragging along the ground. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, <laughs> is this ever going to end? Anyway, it ended. I got, they turned it over. I had a black eyes because the helmet had come down on my head. And that was, that was it. That was, that was all the damage. And then six days later, I had another flip. And so that, oh yeah, it was a, it's been an interesting time. But then the last accident happened so quickly. Um, I lost five weeks of memory, but I don't remember anything about it. Um, so the, violence, get... the violence of that one was extraordinary. I mean, I think, you know, difficult for you guys to watch it as brothers, but just the violence of the the car, the way it got whipped around off the fence was, I remember watching it thinking, well, how can a human body survive that kind of rapid acceleration, deceleration like that? When I got to the, I got to the workshop in Indy a week and a bit after that, uh, Chip Ganassi Racing, and they had the debris sitting there. They had the chassis was in the shop and be stripped off, and I couldn't believe it just used up every bit of safety that it had, and more, which is amazing for an Indy car because they've got all these different crash structures in the front. And then next to it is a pile of parts. I'm like, where's the rest? They're like, that's it. And if you look at the accident, everything just turns to dust. And it's funny, he talks about the Grosjean accident. We were sitting together when he had the accident. And instantly, I'm like, he's dead. There's just yeah. no... But actually, it was like PTSD. It was weird sitting in the room with Dario while it was happening because it brought back all these feelings from when he would have those types of accidents and that that feeling that you don't know if he's alive or dead. That is, that is fucking terrible. It's interesting from a European perspective, people like myself, journalists that you know, vaguely report on the sport. I'm not an F1 journalist, but I still you know, I suppose I comment on it on social media. We talk about the modern racing era as being so profoundly safe, but your era, Dario, of, of that sport will be remembered as being profoundly unsafe. A lot of people lost their lives. Um, do you think that was just part of the sport, or do you think it was? Do you think there's negligence in the safety aspects, or how, how do you feel about it? No, I don't think there was negligence. I think everybody um, that was in, in charge of safety at the time was doing as much as they possibly could. There was no, there was no sort of, you could, I, I wouldn't look and say, you know, Jackie could look at the 70s and say, you know, in the 60s and say, they didn't care. The people, the, the promoters, the safety, they didn't care. We didn't have that in IndyCar. Everybody cared a great deal. Um, has, have, has it moved on since then? Absolutely. Are the tracks inherently still dangerous? Yeah, well, not. Ovals are dangerous because of the speech you're traveling. Um, but they've now got this aero screen that Red Bull Technologies developed with, with IndyCar, and it's kind of a halo with, within a sort of a fighter canopy around it, and it's it's moved the game on again. It's made things a lot safer, but racing's never going to be fully safe, and, um, you know, that's that's in some ways part of the the the, the, the risk-reward is part of the, 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 the walking of the tightrope is part of that interest, isn't it? Um, mm. I never liked the danger, but if there was no go back to the same thing, if there's absolutely no jeopardy, then it's not nearly as um, rewarding when you get it right. Marina, what do you think about it all? I agree. I think that we can only 
what I don't like is when people look back at different eras through the present, you know, present optics. So they try and if people are doing their best at the time with the technology they have, their understanding of safety and everything else, that's all you can ask. You can't sort of look back. I think things like the halo, of course, we all miss that connection with the driver. But the moment they showed the halo, I thought about the friends that we have that have died and would still be here. And I'd put the halo on every single car I could if they were still with us. But there's a there's it's always acceptable risk. And in racing, you know, I think we've both been we've known a lot of drivers, probably more than, than our fair share for this era, who, who have unfortunately passed away. And it's just it's a risk you ha- you you accept. And you always ask that question when the, the worst happens. Like at Le Mans in 2013, was it when uh, Simonson passed away? Yeah. yeah. And you know, you're. I remember walking up to the pit wall. The place was. You just knew there was something wrong because tracks go really weird when someone's passed away. They just they're quiet. Up, yeah. They go quiet. And I walked up to the pit wall. I had my helmet. I was in second. I walked up with my helmet and I said to the engineer, like, "Is there any news?" He's like, "Yeah, I'm sorry, man. He's, he's gone." And I'd been with him. About an hour before the race, we'd run into each other outside our hospitalities, and we were talking about my son at the time was, I think, about three months old, and he had a daughter that was a little bit older than that. We were talking about kids. So I then literally put my helmet on, hands device on. 60 seconds later, I'm in the car going down the Millsand straight past where he died. And you, it sounds weird, but you, you accept that risk and you continue to do it. And one day, maybe that changes, but. You, you accept it. Let's let's uh, let's add some Christmas cheer now. It's a fascinating subject, yeah. but it could be considered a little bit macabre. Right, so I've got a problem at the moment. I think there's some really, the really one. good value. There's, oh, well, I've got a lot of problems. I've got a lot of problems just the way I look, my personality, my odour. There's a lot of shit going wrong with me. I don't smell as he's bad. Stuck as in his arse, he's stuck in his arsehole stage as well. Jesus, I've, I've been in my arsehole stage for 40, nearly 46 <laughs> years, Marino. You know, you know that. Um, the... Um, there's a lot of good value out there in the marketplace, collecting cars being a place where you could, if you wanted to, buy a motor car. But I've got a lot of the good value stuff has got a paddle gearbox from that era when paddle gearboxes were really shit. Oh, mm-hmm. And it kills me. So why I keep looking at 599s. It's almost like I forget what the gearbox is like. I look at a 59 and go, well, I look at that, 80 grand for one of those. Then I think, I don't like the gearbox. What do we do? But can't someone go to Graziano or, or go to somewhere and just say, right, let's get, let's do a kit for all the great cars and make them manuals? Well, you can buy a 599 manual. The problem is they're not value, are they? And they're dreadful yeah. as well because the flywheels are so small on them that every time you lift off and press the clutch, the, the revs drop. Yeah. So, yeah. I, don't, I don't know the answer. It, it Does it? Is it part of, is it going to be part of the charm? You know, when you drive a, like a five-on-two boxer, and the gearbox is kind of bulky and stuff. And is that is is the five nine nine the new sort of version of that where you've just got to lift? No tried, chance. It's, it's a very very good way of pointing it. Quite often, and I, I've I've relied on this with my personality. If you can offset shitness through charm, <laughs> you can actually get somewhere in life. But it, it's for, it's failed for me personality-wise, and it fails in cars. Because you get in cars, like a CSL, N3 CSL, E46, you get in, and for the first 10 miles, you go, yeah, it's really charming. So remember, then you just think, I'd rather be in a normal M3 with a fucking manual gearbox. 
I just, I can't find my way around it. I love the LFA. The LFA is one of the greatest motor vehicles ever made. What would that be like with a manual gearbox? Wow. Chris, I think you, I think though with the shifting though, you're, you're part of the shift though. When you're like in an old car and there's a slow shift, you're part of that and you have to manage it. The problem is when you're just pulling a lever, you expect instant gratification. You expect, come on, get in there. Yeah. And uh, that's the difference, I think so. I was selling those the 599s and 430s when they were new and you could not sell a manual 599, a manual 612, a manual 430, either they, and at the time they allocated them separately. So you either, you either had an allocation for an F1 or a manual, you couldn't decide which gearbox you had. So there were very few manuals for sale, but you just, if you had a used one on the fork or a red, um, 430 manual you just could not sell that thing and and today there's probably you know there there'll be 40 percent more expensive a manual a used manual than a than an f1 yeah. well you guys don't know the pain of doing sebring 12 hours in a 360 with the paddle shift on it and i mean streetcar street paddle shift pre um the, the what was the challenge stradale pre-challenge stradale that is pain. And uh, what are you doing? Are you counting five Mississippi between each gear change? One, oh, two, three, right. four. And you again. just keep you just keep pulling it till something happens as many times <laughs> as you can. And then they take out a bit. The actuator went wrong, and they pulled it out. It's got a Peugeot badge on it. You're like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is a whole. There's a whole part of our motoring history that I know that you two will be into as, as much as I am, as that era between 97, 98 to about, you know, to when the DCTs came in. These cars, are, I think, are going to fall off the radar because I think the transmissions are so shite that you can't find any charm in them. I mean, you drive, you know, a three, if I said to you, you can either have a 355 with an F1 gearbox or no 355, you'd just have no 355, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. Don't you get he that would. on collecting cars? You click through it and you go, "Oh yeah, look at that. It's beautiful. It's grey. Oh, I love the blue leather. Oh that. Oh, oh dear. Oh dear. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> we get that all. I get it. I get it. In I go through. I walk through Bristol and I'll see an M3 E46, and you always have that little peek through the window, and you're a bit. There's a bit of. You're like, oh shit. Oh no, it's got that stubby chrome bastard in it. Oh no. <laughs> But there's going to be a place that, that those cars are going to have a place. They're going to be at the bottom of the food chain. Absolutely. But they're going to be, I think they're going to be more affordable and it will provide an entry point. You want a V12. It's going to be the 412 yes. <laughs> of our generation. <laughs> I want a 412. We should buy a 412 and do a three up, four up road trip in a 412. Definitely. Oh, Amen. Yes. Old style, we can yes. buy beer and jazz mags in a four one two across. <laughs> we can, we can, we can, we can go and deliver. Whoever, name one of your friends, McNish. I don't know him, but we can deliver adult magazines to him in a four one two. He'd love it. Yeah. <laughs> can you imagine, Christopher? What are you in the back of? Well done. Cheese of honey. I'll give you a little. I'll let you give you a little guide into the. I'm in the back of a of a normal wheelbase Mulzan. There's my dog. He's just having a sleep down there, and then that's Pip. Um, and uh, the reason for that is I've just I've just bought a flat, and um, and it doesn't have any internet, and it doesn't, and the phone doesn't work in there. My phone works on the top of the Atlas Mountains, but it doesn't work in in the middle of Bristol. So I'm slightly struggling. So this is my current office. 
uh, as kindly donated by the Bentley Press Office for a couple of weeks. Sweet. It's a very nice way of living, actually. And I, ha- I did have a Mulsanne. I think uh, Dario and I share an affliction there. We both itched yeah. the Mulsanne scratch. I-, I loved mine. I really did. Did you-, did you just think it was too big and too plutocratic? No, I loved it. I loved everything, but I'd, I'd kind of done it. I drove it. Marino and I jumped in it when it was new. We drove it to Anglesey for the race of remembrance. Um, drove it home. Did some tour with some friends. We did tours of all the various. Went like Max did Page. Um, went to Joe McCarry. Went to, to really cool. Tuttle. Don't forget Tuttle. We went to, oh, went to Tuttle's. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Richard. We went to these various different places with this thing, and they all sat in the back, and I drove. Um, uh, <laughs> what the the, the wife and I got driven into to the Autosport Awards in it, um, which was great until we got to a wind restriction and, the, and um, my mate that was driving um, wasn't quite confident enough to take me through. Um, he's used to driving an A8 round and he just didn't feel quite... So I had to get in and, and drive it through the wind restriction, but I loved it. I got it sideways on the... Um, getting onto the M40. That was fun. Which took some doing, yeah. Um, it, it all happens very slowly. There's such a long wheelbase. It just sort of... It tells right. you five minutes before it might go sideways, then it happens and you go, oh, there we yeah. go, and, and off we go again. And I'm I'm not like you, Chris. I'm more like Marino in that my whole life has been making cars go around corners as cleanly as possible. So when I do try and do a skid, I tend to crash. So, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a bit of an affliction. You know, people do, what, what was I doing? And they're like, oh, can you, RS500 for this TV show. Can you, can you make it go, a race car? Can you make it go sideways? No, because every time I tried, the thing would hook up and spit the other way, and that turbo lag like a um, like a jet fighter. I've only ever met of the people I've met that that can drive at all. Um, the ones that deliberately went sideways, I've met a few that made a good living. I've met a lot more that have made a much better living by making cars not go sideways. So you two are definitely in the correct camp when it comes to looking after yourselves. Yeah. yeah, but you do it. You do it in a you are not blowing smoke here. And first of all, I just want to go back slightly. I always thought you'd end up living in a car, but not Bentley. <laughs> so, <laughs> the um, the thing for you drive with such precision sideways, I love it. Like like that video we did with the with the laugh and the nine one eight. Oh, we've got to talk about that. We've got to talk about uh, that. You're just so precise and, oh, it's just poetry in motion. And I, I covet it. I would love to be able to do that. Because yeah, you can do the other stuff. That, you can do you, the other you, stuff. I'm too. not having it. You two have much superior skills to me. I'm a journeyman, no, I, but I have, I have a good laugh. Let's come back to that. Let's no, come no, back hang to on. But let's get back to Tuttle. He just throws the car at the scenery and works out how not to die. <laughs> oh, he, never... honestly, dude, he, is, he is an extraordinary human being. His, his level of car control and the confidence to sort a problem out. I mean, one day we'll get him back on the podcast and talk about the time when I got, we had a few beers with my students and I punched, I got angry and I punched a window and it had that reinforced metal in it and it popped, uh, it popped the main artery down my arm. And I was, let's just say it was coming out quite quickly. And Tuttle decided he was, well, someone decided he was the only person to get me up to the John Radcliffe Hospital as quickly as possible with Claret literally flying out like Spider-Man. And Richard's driving, uh, as, just before I passed out in the back of his red Gulf, I remember thinking, he, if, he does, if we don't die on the way there, I stand a chance of getting there in time. He's driving on the way there. It was utterly outrageous. I remember him going round Morden and round about the wrong way. 
Oh, but yeah, he can he can properly pedal. But um, mm. let's come. Sorry, let's life come and name on it. Yeah. So, so that, that this is an interesting time in my life. Uh, Dario, I think, is probably so. In in 2015, Dario, have you had your big shunt then? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're probably you're you're probably just um just relaxing and and, and enjoying your retirement. And I'm 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 all over the place. I I just work's not happening, and I'm thinking I'm going to go and sell cars in Bristol. It's all shite. Uh, and the internet's not working for me. And I think Marino's probably, you know, you're pretty quiet as well. There's bits and bobs going on. Um, I don't know who were you racing for at that point. Was that was that about to become Ford then? That was. Well, I went from doing the video with you, yeah, to Car of the Year in Scotland with Evo, yeah, straight to America to drive the Ford GT. That was it. That's. It. I'm trying to get some context. Remember, because lots of things have happened yeah. since. And um, and I just thought. There's, you either get a load of people to do this with you that, you know, you either shoot for the stars and you try and get the conventional biggest racing driver star names in the world. Do you go for, do you try and get Sebastian Vettel? Do you try and get Jensen Button? Because, it, you know, there's a feeling this could be quite a big film because there was a pregnancy and people wanted to see these three cars together. First of all, um, to be totally transparent about how I got the cars, I'm not sure if I ever told you this, Marina, I walked up to, I went onto the stand at Geneva Motor Show Stefano Lai, the wonderful Stefano Lai, who was the Ferrari communications director at that point. Only Ferrari who could have a, a guy whose, whose surname, when translated to English, is Lies. So the, the, the PR manager for Ferrari then was called Stephen Lies. Um, he's a, he was an absolute legend. I loved Stefano. And if he's, I know he's retired now, but have you he ever heard this? I want him to know how much I thought he was a great character. I walk onto the stand and I go, can I, can I have a LaFerrari to put against the P1 and a 918? And he went, and I said it, so sarcastically because I had no footing I didn't have a TV show or anything to leave it with I had a bit of an internet presence and he went do you know what yeah and I went are you sorry are you taking the piss and he went he went no and what had happened was it was the week after Jeremy had said that on Top Gear it was one of the last episodes that they did Top Gear he, he'd made some reference about the fact they couldn't that Ferrari wouldn't turn up with a LaFerrari because they were scared of putting it against the P1 and the 918 and they'd slightly ridiculed Ferrari in their studio environment and Ferrari was so pissed off with that that they said, we'll give you the car just so we don't give it to him. And I went, you taking the piss. And looking back, it probably slightly altered all of our lives, didn't it? It was a, mm -hmm. it was a mega thing to do. It just came about because Jeremy had been impish with them. Um, obviously, they, they ended up getting the cars for their Grand Tour launch thing, which was shot like a week after we'd been there. Um, but it was, it was special, wasn't it? And I think what, what I hope people got feeling was that we had lots of fun doing it. I didn't want... Vettels and the I didn't want the superstars. I wanted some people there that I could have fun with. So that's and I impression knew I got. Yeah, I just I got Watching this it. good fun. You know, it was just and I, so I had it was like a bunch of mates and we had Neil O and we had Mavro who's a friend from America who came over and shot and we had Jamie Lippman doing the stills. Everyone were there was a friend, but I needed I needed a combination of people that could properly pedal, properly pedal and could have a laugh. And Marino and Tiff. It's an unlikely combination, and it's, maybe we'll never end up on screen together again. It'd be a shame if we didn't. But oh, it worked. Brilliant. It really Christ. worked. And I, talking, it of, talking, of, talking of freakish car control, Tiff's unbelievable. But making that was joy. But I think as well, the, at the time, you were like, you know, up to your neck. You, it, it was, this had to work. It had to happen. It had to work the same way. And the, while it was a lot of fun, the stress, I, I I mean, I've seen you stress before, but I've never seen you stress like that. And 
it's a very special thing. People talk to me more about that when I meet them than anything else. It's always brought up at least a couple of times a week. It's uh, it's interesting. It's a very it's, special it's, thing. Uh, we were lucky to do it, and maybe maybe Dario, we could come to you at some point when we do Valkyrie versus T fifty versus Mercedes, whatever they're going to call it, and um, and we can make you a part of the next one. We could have the two Franchitti brothers and me and something else. That'd be quite good, wouldn't it? That'd be fun, wouldn't it? What I mean, I mean, that's going to be a combination. A week, a week in Portimao playing golf. We'd have to have Tiff down there just doing weights yeah. and measures because he had to, he had to serve the drinks <laughs> for himself basically because he because the consumption rate of that man is needs to be seen to be believed. But uh, no, they were happy times, and I I uh, like that we all take gambles, don't we? I'm sure that you've both done things where you've you, you knew that it was probably reckless to do it, but the upside was potentially so great that you had to take the risk. I think racing drivers probably do that more than any other individual that I know. They take risks because they're not scared of consequences or because they're so hungry to get to a place that they're not willing to even consider failure. They just do it. Um, if, I look so back, if I look back at some of the stuff I did, absolutely, I go, what was I thinking? I did, wow, that was ballsy. And then I look now and I'm a completely different person and I'm very, very risk averse. But back then, yeah, crack on. What was the, we'll have to wrap this up fairly soon, but what, Dario, what was the, because you raced in an era where there was a lot of power floating around. Did you ever drive a racing car that was too fast? Because it's often said that racing drivers can never have too much power, but do you, do you adhere to that or not? Um, a difficult question. Um, a pure, from a pure competition standpoint, you've never, there was never enough power. I drove a car that had a thing called a Hanford device on the back, which was designed to slow it down. It's like a parachute, the reverse wing, the big bit hanging down to, to slow the car down. Yeah, it would still, especially in a tow, it would pull 250 something miles an hour. Um, <laughs> Gilles de Ferran did a lap at California Speedway. It average speed 242, I think, was the average. Um, average? That was the average. And those were, were they too fast? They caught the imagination and what the hell they were, they were scary to drive. Um, and, you know, I, I, I lost one of my best pals, Greg Moore, in that, in that era. Um, and th th they were just so unforgiving. I think that's the thing. And that was part of the challenge of it. And um, Marie, both Marino and I, and I, I don't know, Monk, have you driven the, the 91730. I've had a go in a 91710, not a 30. So I've probably driven a thousand horsepower, not 1300. Yeah. So both Marino and I drove that up the hill at Goodwood. And um, I made some, I drove it on the Saturday. Marino drove it on the Sunday. And I said something like, oh, poof. yeah, it's like quick. But I didn't actually get to full throttle. And Marino looked at me and went, why not? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Marino, yeah. But he had had he'd had the bravery pills that weekend because he took our mum up the hill in the noble, and was <laughs> clocked going by the house at hundred one forty, one forty by the house. What are you thinking? It was great. I thought mum's been really game here. She didn't she didn't say a thing the whole way up. And our mum likes a wee moan. She didn't say a thing the whole way up. And I get across the line and back off and look over and all here is breathe the whole way up there. <laughs> <laughs> the, 
you wrap up, how is your how is your how is your, how is your GP three? Your touring. Um, what? Uh, it's quite well used now. It's done fifty. It's coming up on sixty thousand kilometers, I think, and it's done. Um, and Pip and I live in it the whole time, so he's made he's made a few choice adjustments to seat runners, seats, <laughs> that kind of thing. So it's, and I, I don't need another car. It's very strange, isn't it? I think we're all really lucky that we we got access to some amazing cars, but there are certain vehicles that just fit with your life and the way that your brain works and what you want in a car. I can finish testing the most incredible street car, hypercar, even racing cars, and every time I get in my little touring i just think this is the only car i ever want i just love it it goes very well um and it's uh it's a bit yellow i know but it's the only one i could get at the yellow. time. i know it's the only one i could get at the time but i think i think it'll stay with me forever and what about i i'm not, I, I may maybe order a 992 touring i'm not sure um, they came up with a 992 in your view say that again are they going to step the game up with a 992 in your view yeah you know i have yeah, I've got to be careful. He always does, doesn't he? I've already, I've already got. I, I, I've got myself in trouble with Porsche a bit, haven't I, with this GT3 business? But the, <laughs> the, it would. I, they've never made a car that was worse than the one before. I, I'm, I'm aware of that. They've, they've made cars that have got less character and have lost aspects, be they electric power steering and stuff like that. Hmm. But they've never made a car that's worse. I think they have. I think it's fair to say that that engine's reached the end of its life now in terms of being developed much further. You might get another 10, 20 horsepower. But it's not. You're not going to get an exponential increase. You're not suddenly going to have a 600 horsepower, normally aspirated GT3 anytime soon. That isn't going to happen. Um, as long as you remember that better is not necessarily fast. You know, it's not. And, you don't have to be. As you say, character is is, is, is the word, and that's you know. That's he, one of he the gets that, I think. Yeah, he does. I think if anybody does, he gets, does, he gets it. He yeah, totally he gets, gets it, and and I, I I totally agree. Now. Before we leave, we have to just ask one question, and this is this is far more painful than to to one of the Frankichi brothers. And I can only say it because I know I'm safely distanced in a um, double glazed Bentley, probably several hundred miles away. Which one of you owned and sold a 964 3.8 RS? That's not me. <laughs> <laughs> and he's left the room. And he's left the room. Oh, hey, no. uh, listen, he, now, he, for the benefit listen, of everyone that can't see this, he's now showing us a model of it. Now, Dario, three time Indy 500 winner, comma, explain yourself. Right. Um, so I, I never thought I'd get to buy it. It was one of the three right hand drive cars. It lived oh! its whole, it lived it pretty much its whole life in Scotland. Um, Jack Tordoff from JCT was the first owner, and then it went to Scotland. And I used to see all these things, and I kept asking the man that owned it, um, Neil. Butcher that owned he, it. He, yeah, Neil's a butcher. Paid a lot of money for it in 1996 or something. And I kept saying, Neil, sell me the car. Nope, never selling it. Neil, sell me the car. Nope. So then um, the white car came back from Australia, and it sold for quite a lot of money in London. And I was sitting at the Hotel de France, and I get this phone call. Um I think I'm going to sell that car. But anyway, bought the car, sent it to Reading. They went right through it back to front. Um, and it was perfect. I took the silencers off it because it needed to be louder. And it was absolutely perfect. The problem was it was too perfect. And every time I drove it, and it wasn't about the value of the car, because I've, I've owned cars, more expensive cars, whatever, but it wasn't about that. It was about if, if 
it was original. And if I did, any, if I got stone chips or any of that stuff, it was, it was one of those three cars and it just felt so special that, you know, it, 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 I wasn't enjoying it. I wasn't enjoying taking it out because of that. And um, I sent it down to Lee Maxted Page who sold it within a day. And the, the man who bought it was the same as me. He's, he drove it and was like, oof, it's too, it's too nice to drive. And it's now, for, it's been for sale for a while. Um, but I, 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 I mean, I've got a model of it in my office. What does that tell you about it? Such a, <laughs> such a special, special car. Um, yeah. I've, what can I tell you? It's better to have better to have loved and lost in many respects, and I totally sympathise with this idea of something being too good to use. When something's too good to use, particularly as a motor car, it starts to lose its purpose. I think as I I only ever owned one car in my life that was I was worried about the value of it, and I I started yeah, worrying yeah. about stone chips and stuff like that. Yeah. What would that be a nine nine three GT two? For the benefit of people that are not seeing this now, I'm now giving the V's to the Frankie brothers. Um, yeah, I had the same. Like, it was just a car that I just, I start, for the first time, I don't care about the way things are presented. You might have realised that. And I don't care about using stuff at all and getting stone chips and wrecking tyres and what have you. But for the first time ever, I remember getting, I, I was coming, a lorry was coming towards me. And as I came towards the lorry, I winced and thought, oh, God, what if it kicks up a stone? At that point, I, w yeah. I went back and I think, oh, this is going. This is not. It's, this is drawing behaviour out of me that isn't me. Therefore, I can't. I can't drive it anymore. Yeah, that, I think that's the only car I've had that does that. The F40, I'm precious about. I've owned it for twenty, nearly twenty-two years. I've, I've owned the same car, um, but most of the stuff I'm not that precious about. The Daytona Spider, I'll take out and blat around, and but this car just brought something out and. Um, yeah, it's um, oh, what a thing though, especially with the straight pipes on it. It sounded quite, quite lovely. Right, guys, I think we're going to have to wrap it there. Um, to Marino and Dario, thank you so much for giving us a bit of time and um, a very, very happy Christmas to you both. I hope that you um, settle down with your loved ones um, and, and enjoy whatever you can do in, in within these restrictions. Um, it's been a bizarre year. Edward, I know you, you've been a little bit quiet up there, letting us just natter and talk shit, but um, Collecting Cars has had a frankly phenomenal year. You know, It started out as, as something that people had heard of but didn't really know what it was about, and now um, has, has sold thousands of cars this year and, and is, um, is a market leader. You know, it's, It is turning over more than any other auction house in the UK at the moment, and um, you should be very proud, Edward. Uh, and I, I hope I hope you can have uh, a glass of mulled wine and maybe take your foot off throttle for about five minutes over Christmas because you are flat out the whole time. Um, so, uh, yeah, from Collecting Cars uh, HQ to all of you out there, have a great Christmas. Enjoy your motor vehicles. Be safe. Don't do anything reckless. Um, and we will hear from you or see you or you'll hear from us in the new year. Goodbye. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Collecting Cars. The safe, smart and simple way to buy and sell collectible cars. An online auction platform for the UK and Europe. Follow us on Instagram at CollectingCars and also CollectingCars.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.